0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future.
1: I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arunas. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, November 27th. April is back in town, and we are ready to dig into the tech news of the week.
0: Yes, I, I was gone for a couple weeks uh, reporting in Northern California and traveling, but it's good to be back at the mic. And now we're going to talk about something that happened the night before Thanksgiving last week. As Americans were flying in to see family and finalizing their holiday plans, Facebook decided to dump some very serious news. The company admitted that they had indeed asked a conservative PR firm to attack Facebook's nonprofit critics by highlighting their funding ties to the liberal financier George Soros. Facebook leaders had previously denied responsibility for that particular detail, which is understood to be a dog whistle for a common right-wing trope that a cabal of Jewish elites are controlling global affairs— This, to be clear, is anti-Semitic and untrue. And this all comes against a backdrop of increasing tension between top tech companies and their employees. Across Silicon Valley, from Facebook to Amazon to Google to Microsoft, we're seeing workers at these companies organize and demand more ethical practices from their employers.
1: We'll also talk about the startling news over the weekend that the first gene-edited babies were reportedly born in China as part of a secret project at a university. Using the gene-editing technology called CRISPR, Chinese scientists say they made modifications to a fertilized egg as part of an IVF treatment, the goal being to make the baby resistant to HIV. The scientist behind this claims that healthy twin girls were born in the last few weeks as part of this process. Now, he's facing widespread condemnation, and ethical questions are being raised about employing this type of technology in humans. We'll be joined by Antonio Regalado from the MIT Technology Review, who broke the story this past Sunday, to help explain the situation and what we can expect from human gene editing in the years to come.
0: And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on this week's If Then.
2: Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect.
1: Define an opportunity.
2: Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now.
1: Identify a problem.
2: Creating an audio ad is time-consuming
1: offer a solution.
2: Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.
1: April, it's great to have you back.
2: Thanks for having me back. Great show
0: last week with Alex Stamos, formerly of Facebook and at the center of so many of the controversies at the company. Uh super insightful. Um and I want to Keep talking about that a little bit because the news uh, on that beat has not slowed down. As we said in the intro, uh, Facebook admitted to doing this kind of opposition research uh, right before Thanksgiving.
1: Right. So this is the continuing fallout from that New York Times investigation of Facebook. And when it happened, Facebook initially acknowledged that they had hired definers public affairs. That's the the opposition research firm that employs these D.C.-style tactics, in Mark Zuckerberg's words. But Zuckerberg and Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg had done a lot to try to distance themselves from that work. Um, They said they didn't know who had hired definers. They disclaimed knowledge of the specific tactics that definers used. And then, of course, the night before Thanksgiving, in what is commonly known in our industry as a news dump, Facebook published a blog post where their outgoing head of communications took the fall and said, yeah, actually, not only did we hire definers, but we told them to make that that anti-Semitic smear involving George Soros. Uh, And, uh, yeah, we you know, we probably shouldn't have done that. um, But there you go.
0: Yeah, it just it's still so shocking to me that they would resort to this just because, you know, a couple of groups— and let's be clear, one of these groups, Color of Change, is a a civil rights group, uh, you know, were criticizing Facebook while Facebook was under, like— really um, understandable criticism. I mean, we were criticizing Facebook. Everybody was because they had, you know, allowed for Russian operatives to to completely instrumentalize their platform in an attempt to undermine our democratic processes. You know, there's a lot of reasons to to criticize Facebook. People were criticizing Facebook because they felt that Uh, Racial justice activists were being unfairly uh, removed or censored on the platform while people who were saying, you know, hateful things uh, against, uh, you know, Muslims were allowed to stay on. You know, this is uh, really deserved criticism of the company and and stuff that they should be able to deal with without resorting to uh, this kind of quite frankly, prejudicial anti-Semitic framing against uh, against their very valid critics. It just doesn't seem to be playing fair at all.
1: Right. And we also now know that at the same time, Facebook was directing definers public affairs to raise the specter of, of Soros and the globalists. It was trying to go after other critics by calling them anti-Semitic and saying that they were anti-Semitic for criticizing Facebook and, and Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, really just using some of the same kind of propaganda tactics that have infected the platform, ironically. I mean, this is the stuff that they're supposed to be committed to fighting, and instead here they are paying for it to be done on their behalf to tar their critics.
0: And just to be clear, like for Color of Change, you know, a former Facebook employee, Dustin Moskovitz, uh, who co-founded Facebook with Zuckerberg, not just an employee, um, is a much bigger supporter of the organization. He gave them one point five million. So, I mean, it's just very, very weaselly here. And it just makes me incredibly uncomfortable with how this company decides to wield its power. And it also makes me uncomfortable because this company is a company that we trust with so much personal information and if they're willing to you know throw daggers in this way uh in a way that perpetuates hate then it it a doesn't make me feel comfortable that they are actually serious about eradicating hate on the platform nor does it make me feel comfortable about what they're going to do uh with with our data you know and and what they're going to do with with their their users who who trust them with with all this information that can be absolutely used against them
1: yeah, so Facebook is now doing damage control on um, this uh, latest self-created crisis, and they're going to meet with color of change, apparently, and they're going to undertake a civil rights audit this spring, um, studying the platform's impact on communities of color. It's interesting that it took this uh, for them to for them to dig into that uh, question. But I think the big upshot here is that for a long time, critics have seen Facebook as uh, evil and, and Machiavellian, and and now that's starting to become a more general sentiment, I think. And even in Silicon Valley, uh, people are, are are turning against Facebook, and Facebook's own workers, I think, are are upset.
0: You know, it is interesting that uh, Facebook employees uh, have largely been more quiet than other uh, tech workers. When it comes to criticizing their company, you know we've seen a lot of actions from Googlers, actions from uh, people that work at Amazon and and Microsoft, but we haven't seen um, the same kind of uh, response from internal Facebook employees, and and that might be changing now. In fact, you know th- it is changing.
1: Yeah, I think that might be coming, and and we've talked a fair amount on this show about how Silicon Valley tech workers are one of the biggest levers of potential change or reform in the tech industry. We've just continued to see that lately. April, you linked uh, in, in, our, in our company Slack earlier today to um, a, a petition uh, going around in New York among uh, tech workers asking them to pledge not to work for Amazon if they move to their new uh, HQ2 in Queens, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, because Amazon is really being uh, propped up as as a company that does not respect uh, the labor of its workforce. And maybe it pays well to the tech employees. But we know that if you deliver for Amazon, if you work in their warehouses, that those conditions are treacherous and that people um, have been uh, so extremely disrespected when it comes to the logistics industry of online retail that, uh, that you know, tech workers are kind of stay- taking a stand that they don't want to be a part of that. We've also, of course, seen... Um, backlash against uh, Amazon's recognition software, which is its facial recognition program that they have been openly selling to law enforcement, which could be used uh, to perpetuate uh, racist policing. Today, we saw a, a new petition from Googlers uh, demanding that the company that they work for pull out of Dragonfly, which is, uh, you know, the project to build the search engine in China. We've talked about this uh, on our show, saying that it would kind of, you know, aid in, um, in, in human rights abuses there. And, and the interesting thing about this is that, you know, it's hundreds of Googlers have signed on, but they've, been, they've done so with their full name. This time, Right. Like we know that there were thousands of people who signed something earlier this year against Dragonfly at Google, but that was kept internally. Now we see people going public with their name against the company really willing to take a stand. And and what's so interesting here and and so important here with with kind of these uh, tech workers fighting back is that the whole reason why these companies are valuable is because their workers are productive because their workers build these products that people use. And as more stuff has come out that, like, you know, Google pays off uh, sexual uh, predators at the company to leave. You know, this is like coming from like with the, the Andy Rubin story. This is coming from money that their employees are making for the company. And so I just want to stress that this isn't just like standing on the, si- on the side of a, a sidewalk holding a sign in front of the building. These are workers that have the power to disrupt the productivity of these companies that are powerful precisely because of their labor.
1: And we're seeing real responses, right? I mean, Amazon uh, announced in October that it's raising the minimum wage to $15 for its U.S. employees. Um, Google responded to the employee walkout by ending um, uh, arbitration in sexual harassment cases. And maybe in some cases, I mean, these companies are, are are so visible and the workers do have such leverage, maybe they're able to win some concessions here that benefit people outside the tech industry as well. There's a, there's a column in Slate, yesterday by Luke Norris saying, that Google employees are leading the way on sexual harassment reform, the rest of the country should follow, and that, and that uh, workers around the company should, should around the country, should demand the same from their own employers.
0: Right. I want to talk about though where Google is not making strides, and so like the the arbitration issue that you brought up it's really great, but it doesn't count for uh, discrimination cases at the company. It counts for uh, kind of sexual harassment cases, and you know similarly uh, with Facebook, there was a, a post today uh, that was published by someone who used to work. At Facebook, uh, Mark Leckie, entitled "Facebook is Failing Its Black Employees and Its Black Users," and it brought up all the kind of structural ways within the company that um, that racism is is such like an insidious force and and kind of continues to to perpetuate and and into its products and the way that the, the uh, social media site is used by Black people. Um, and one thing that I just find really interesting is when Silicon Valley is quick to address, you know, certain. Issues of injustice and not others. So, you know, we see when I go to like Pride and I see all these Google shirts and all these Facebook shirts and all these people repping these companies, it's like I know that Silicon Valley is really, really good when it comes to discrimination around sexual orientation, uh, but I know that they're not good when it comes to racial discrimination, right? So we didn't see. Silicon Valley uh quickly take up arms when it came uh to the Black Lives Matter movement. But when there was the uh military transgender ban, which don't get me wrong is horrible, you know, leaders spoke out immediately. And so uh, you know, we see uh companies really slow to drag their feet um on some issues, perhaps because it would kind of show that these companies really only have one or two percent black technical staff or uh, and in leadership and um, and would kind of point to kind of the abysmal state of uh, racial justice within these companies.
1: Right. So, I mean, that raises an interesting point, which is that as tech workers become this powerful force for, for reform in their companies, we may also have to start scrutinizing what tech workers' priorities are and what their agenda is because that's driven in part by who they are and where they come from. Um, and if you do not have racial diversity in the tech workforce, then you're not going to see that prioritized as much as as maybe some of the other other concerns.
0: Yeah. You know, um, you know, even when these companies hire uh, women of color, they don't stay for very long. They have a very high rate of attrition. One quote that I want to point out from this post from Mark Lucky that I mentioned before, uh, he says, in some buildings, there are more Black Lives Matter posters than there are actual black people. He says this about Facebook. Um, so really, there's there's just not diversity within the company. Um, and yeah, I, I look forward to seeing how employees there uh, start to mobilize around uh, some
1: of the issues that have been brought up in the news for so long and that are now starting to be brought up by former employees there. All right. We're going to leave it there and take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Antonio Regalado about CRISPR gene editing technology and the babies that were reportedly born in China with edited genes.
3: podcast is brought to you by progressive insurance let's face it sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot but then again sometimes multitasking is easy like quoting with progressive insurance they do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you even if it's not with them Give their nifty comparison tool a try and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive.
0: Our guest today is Antonio Regalado, a senior editor at the MIT Technology Review. His reporting focuses on how technology is changing medicine and biomedical research. Before joining the Technology Review in 2011, he covered science, tech, and politics in Latin America for science. He also worked at the Wall Street Journal before that. And more recently, he broke the story this past Sunday about the Chinese scientists using CRISPR gene editing technology to produce human genomes that would be resistant to HIV. The main researcher, He Jiankui, of the Southern University of Science and Technology in Shenzhen, edited the genes of embryos used in IVF treatment. This has resulted in the live birth of two twin girls in China this month, according to the Associated Press. Since the story broke, Regalado has also reported that the scientist is now under investigation as to whether he broke any Chinese laws while conducting the controversial and secret procedure. Antonio Regalado, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Hey, great to be here. So
0: I want to start with a question that may be kind of remedial or basic, but I was telling my brother that I was going to do this podcast on this topic today, and he thought CRISPR was a company. And, you know, I just realized that a lot of people don't really understand what CRISPR is or what we mean when we say gene editing technology. Can you kind of, first of all, kind of break down with some definitions of of what we're talking about here?
4: Sure. Uh, First of all, gene editing is just kind of a a newfangled word for genetic engineering. It's a new a new form of genetic engineering. CRISPR it just happens to be um, the cheapest, easiest, kind of most effective tool for doing it. And, and it was discovered sort of over a process of years, but especially uh, starting in mid-2012 in, in the genome of bacteria. It's, it's something that bacteria have to basically chop up incoming viruses. They have a way to kind of remember what these viruses look like. And as soon as the virus gets into the bacteria, the bacteria has this special protein called Cas9. It's, a, it's called a nuclease, and that, this special protein is basically like a big pair of scissors that goes and chops up um, the viruses. And so what happened in 2012 into 2013 is that scientists basically uh, managed to get this system out of the bacteria so you could use it in other types of cells, plant cells, pig cells, cattle cells, and human cells to change the DNA uh, really easily in those types of cells. So it's just a phenomenally uh easier to use technology for genetic engineering and it's just taken off i mean in so many directions
0: and including the direction that it's been kind of uh tested uh for potential use in humans or now that we know actual use in human embryos can you can you tell us what what happened with uh with jk as as he's called the doctor from Shenzhen,
4: right? Just back up to 2015. You know, I mentioned these animals. So right. as soon as CRISPR came out, people were in a big race. You know, I got to edit the goat, and I have to edit the sheep, and I got to edit the zebrafish, and and they were just running through this list of species. And just at the end of 2013, I think it was January 2014, uh, someone edited uh, a monkey. Right? They produced monkeys that whose genomes had been altered by CRISPR, and so. A lot of people, including myself, were, were kind of had the thought, well, gee, you could edit a monkey, uh, you probably could to edit a human. And it wasn't long, um, I think in March 2015, where we heard the first report of someone editing a human embryo. And, and why would you do that? Uh, in that case, they edited it to remove uh, the risk gene for beta thalassemia, which is a blood disease actually common in South China, uh, where the research was carried out. So suddenly you had people editing these human embryos in an IVF clinic. So clearly, uh, it kind of raised the next possibility was like, well, would you take that embryo and and implant it um, into a woman's uterus and produce the live birth? And so there've been just a ton of meetings, high-level discussions, and a lot of hand-wringing and anxiety about uh, this next step, which is you know, genetically engineer the human species, basically. Um, A lot of people didn't want to see it happen yet. It might not be safe. Uh, A bunch of other people think that it's kind of a line in the sand that shouldn't be crossed. We really shouldn't take that step. And what happened was in China, a researcher that most people never heard of uh, took the step in secrecy and apparently, allegedly, produced two uh, girls whose genomes had been changed to remove a gene called CCR5, and we can talk about uh, what that is and how it's connected to, to HIV. The doctor who calls himself J.K., I'm just going to call him that as well, it's a kind of a nickname um, that he uses, he uh, says that he's produced twin girls. There's twin girls who've been edited, so they've actually been born. Of course, the scientists are very upset because there's no paper, there's no data to look at, nobody really knows if it's true. Um, some people have seen a paper because there's a paper in circulation. He's trying to get it published. Good luck with that. And that's where things stand, yeah.
0: And so I just want to step back. The, the early testing on animals, that was to eradicate disease?
4: No, actually, b- more often to introduce disease because you want an animal model that suffers from some human disease, right? You'd like to see a monkey that has, I don't know, uh, autism or... Uh, you know, a pig that has uh, some kind of heart disease. You, you're trying to introduce human diseases into animals. Uh, or you're trying to make animals that are kind of interesting or more useful, right? You could get a, a cow that's bigger and that has more uh, uh, meat on it. Or I think there was one in China where they they tweaked things with CRISPR so that the hair of the goats, sort of cashmere goats or something, would be a lot longer and you could collect it. Uh, there was another one, pretty interesting case, where, uh, some scientists in the U.S. had figured out what what was the formula to give cows horns or not have horns, and so they introduced sort of a no-horn recipe into Holsteins dairy cows, oh my gosh. who normally do have horns. Yeah, and these the horns cause problems. If you work on a dairy farm, 364 days a year, you can take a school bus full of children there, but there's one day when you can't, and that's dehorning day. It's this huge bloody mess. Chemicals and acids, and they take the horns off the cows, so here was a kind of a genetic solution. Well, you could just make a cow with no horns, and that 's what they did
1: all right and so when we talk about editing human genes, people might start to think about um, making smarter babies, faster, stronger babies, creating some kind of master race. but we're that's a ways off right.
4: Um, <laughs> I don't know how far off it is. This, this gene that he chose is kind of in a gray zone. It's in a gray zone between medicine and enhancement. So we could just walk through uh, kind of what those zones are. First, medicine. You could imagine a situation where maybe, maybe you have Huntington's disease, which is a fatal disease. It's terrible. Uh, it's due to um, a sort of genetic change uh, that some people have. And, you know, imagine you wanted to have children that didn't have the Huntington's gene. In this case, half your children on average would, would also have Huntington's if you do. So what you might do is you might go to an IVF clinic and, with your partner and have the embryos made, and then uh, you could do one of two things. First of all, you could genetically test them, and you could just choose the embryos that didn't have the Huntington's gene. And so that's actually what people do today, or, or can do. Um, so that's called selection, and that's kind of one way to do it. The idea with genome editing is that you might also be able to go into those embryos with CRISPR and just sort of delete the problematic gene. So this raises the question, well, why would you do it? Why would you do the CRISPR, which might have unknown risks, when you can already just choose the unaffected embryo? And that is an important question because it really reduces the need for this whole idea of editing the embryos at all. I mean, a lot of people say there's no need for it. On the other hand, IVF doesn't work that well. It's difficult. It's difficult. Uh, you don't always get a pregnancy, so the IVF doctors say yes, but we want as many embryos as we can. So we'd like to fix the bad ones and then and then try and use them all to to create the birth. But the, the scenario that I gave you there, that's medicine. The embryo literally has something wrong with it, a genetic defect, and you're trying to repair it. So that's one of the concepts. Enhancement on the other extreme is you know what could you do something to the embryo to increase its intelligence? Uh, could you change its hair color? Could you change its height? Some of these enhancement things might actually be possible today. Others are, are still sort of science fiction just because people kind of don't know what the genes are that you would change to make the baby more intelligent, but it's kind of the direction that things are leading. So JK chose a case that is problematic because it's kind of in between medicine and enhancement. He's taking a totally normal embryo and he's using CRISPR to mutate it, Right. Um, which itself is kind of questionable. And the change that he wants to make, he wants to remove this gene CCR5 and render the children immune to HIV. So HIV is not a disease that these embryos have. It's not even a disease that the children have. It's a disease that they could have in the future. So it's it's more like a vaccine. Uh, and I think that's the word he's used to describe it. It's kind of a genetic vaccine against a future disease. So it is isn't a form of enhancement. In the same way that a vaccine that protects you against chickenpox is kind of an enhancement of your immune system. Uh, so too, this embryo editing, um, in this case is, is, would protect you against HIV. So, um, it's a very strange choice to have made for the first CRISPR baby. Um, but I think it was made just because for technical reasons, it was one of the easier things to do. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You've, you've been talking about this line between medicine and enhancement, and I guess that matters because, our society has chosen to draw that line right like we're okay with people taking stimulant medications if they have ADHD we're not okay because that's medicine we're not okay with them taking it if they don't have ADHD just to get an edge on their on their exam or something like that
4: yeah but we do it anyway right um so in the yeah right so in this debate over the edited embryos and now the edited people it, it has been this game of sort of drawing lines uh, in the sand and then crossing them. You know, the original line in the sand was, you know, never interfere with the human genome, that it's somehow sacrosanct. Uh, well, we cross that line, uh, and then more recently, sort of the experts have said, well, you know, the medical uses of this technology might be reasonable if it could be done safely, carefully regulated. We could do it for medicine, but we'll never do enhancement because that's wrong. But then even more recently, there's another ethics body in the U.K. that said, well, you know what, I'm not sure we can really draw that line. I think enhancement would be okay, too, so long as everybody gets it, so long that it's socially equitable. So we keep advancing where this line is, um, and in effect, uh, there's no line.
0: Yeah, I don't see how enhancement could ever be socially equitable because we don't, as healthcare isn't socially equitable yet, right? And so it seems like there's just an inevitability for extreme stratification for the uh, access to this type of, you know, genetic pre-birth enhancement.
4: Yeah, But, but of course, you know, the practice of medicine has its own standards. And so there's already a lot of things that you could do in an IVF clinic that people don't really do, like sex selection. Could you choose the gender of the embryo? It's really easy to do. In China, it's banned. I mean, we think of China as this wild west, but they actually prohibit uh, the choosing of the sex of the embryo. In the U.S., it's allowed but kind of discouraged. Uh, if you're testing the embryo anyway, well, maybe they'll tell you, but they wouldn't test the embryo you know, just to tell you the the gender of it. So in the U.S., it's kind of a mixed system. You can find out, but, but not always. So... Um, the standards that the doctors hold up and sort of, you know, societal agreements uh, do make a big difference in how these technologies get used. And, and honestly, it's also just what is practical, right? I don't think you're going to go to the clinic and get a CRISPR baby for yourself unless there's a really, really good reason. I don't think this JK guy in China has come up with a good reason, but even so, you know, IVF is a big pain, um, The eggs have to be collected. It's like a whole month process of shots. It costs a lot of money. You know, it's a lot easier to do it the old fashioned way.
0: So that brings me to a final question. You know, how difficult is this process at this point? And how soon uh, do you think it is till we see this, you know, potentially more widespread or available to people?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the basic problem is that it's not that hard to do. That's why people were talking about it even before it happened. Wow. Kind of predicting it would happen it's just not that hard to do that 's how easy this CRISPR technology is. It's really effective. It could be hard to do well, obviously not everybody has a, you know an embryology lab at their disposal, but it's definitely uh relatively easy to do. The technology is pretty precise, so that's the whole problem. It is doable. How soon um, I think depends on these other factors uh, yeah, sort of how much Uh, Grit people put kind of in the wheels of this machine to slow it down. Uh, What people want, uh, what's on offer at the IVF clinics, I don't really think it will happen all that fast. I think a more realistic outcome is that it would be pretty narrowly used um, in cases of severe genetic diseases that you want to avoid passing on.
1: Right. So, and just a quick point of clarification, I mean, you're saying it is easy to use this technology to edit a gene. It doesn't necessarily mean it's easy to alter a human in more abstract ways, like making them smarter. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that could backfire. There's not one specific gene that makes you smart.
4: Right. In the, in the case of intelligence, I mean, there's, there's plenty of one specific gene to make you less intelligent. I mean, there's all kinds of disorders, uh, you know, mental disorders. Um, I don't think that they know of you know particular genes that are going to make you a lot more intelligent, but the way genetics is going, they are gradually zeroing in on what are some of the uh, genes and genetic locations associated with higher intelligence. They are, so it could in the future come together with CRISPR, but the, the problem is just you'd have to sort of change the genome at, at many locations, which today is not feasible, but tomorrow it might be
0: you know we we think of birth as a starting point even though people select their mates and and you know all of this stuff happens be before birth so this is really kind of a a new way of thinking about evolution in many ways if we if we think about editing the the genome it's just so so wild and so it it brings up so many questions But I guess I'm curious now, uh, finally, even though I said finally before, what is the legal scaffolding around this at this point? Is there any um, like actual rules against this uh, internationally or nationally? You said that in China there's, you know, some banning on picking the sex and in the U.S. it's more gray. But uh, is, is there anything preventing this besides the medical community shunning it?
4: In the U.S., it is it would be illegal right now to take one of these edited embryos and actually try and establish a pregnancy. The Congress, I think, sort of Republican pro-life elements of the Congress managed to get a rider in a funding bill for the FDA, where they they have told the FDA you cannot even accept or consider an application from anybody to do this. So, in the U.S. currently, and because you know the FDA does regulate that area, in the U.S. it would be illegal to transfer. One of these edited embryos. In China, it's a little bit harder to tell, as, a, as there are a lot of things okay. in China. There is a rule on the books from 2003 that basically says the same thing: don't transfer the embryo. But it's kind of unclear if that's a guidance or a law or, or what that is. So um, it's a little less clear in China. In in many parts of Europe, the, the whole thing would be completely banned. Uh, UK has a kind of sophisticated way to regulate these technologies. So it would be illegal there unless they gave permission, which they could do. Um, So, you know, there's various regulatory regimes whereby uh, it could happen, but for the most part, it's actually banned. And so one of the questions with JK, the scientist in China is whether, you know, did he commit a crime? Uh, Did he break the rules or not? And it's not clear. A lot of people are investigating him right now, I can tell you that. And you mentioned evolution. And I thought that was pretty interesting because if you think about it, like you, April, will myself, we're we're the products of evolution, the products of millions of years of evolution. But now, um, as we take it into our own hands, as we start to edit the genomes of the embryos, like we're changing evolution, right? So it is just a really strange, uh, outcome, uh, or maybe it's an outcome that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like the snake bites its own tail. Uh, evolution has created the species that can control evolution, right? And maybe speed it up.
0: Yeah, this is just so much to think about. And I'm really excited to continue to follow your excellent reporting on this. Antonio, thank you so much for joining us.
4: Great to be here. Thanks.
0: One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
2: Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.
1: Tabs time. Will, uh, what's open on
0: your browser right now?
1: All right. My tab this week is a little old. It's from a week or so ago in The New Yorker, but it's so fascinating, and it actually might take you a while to read. It's called The Mystery of the Havana Syndrome. It's about the unexplained brain injuries that have afflicted American diplomats abroad. It started in Cuba. The story is just this really compelling and disorienting mystery about a a mysterious ailment that has been called at various times sonic attacks or mysterious brain injuries. It's been referred to as a concussion without a concussion. Some of the people who were suffering from it just called it the thing because there's no real diagnosis from it. Nobody knows exactly what happened, but The New Yorker does its best to get the bo- to the bottom of it. Um, it's it's really just a gripping story. Um, and and it resonated with me especially because mysteries are just kind of rare in modern life, or they seem kind of rare, like things that that we just can't figure out or just don't know what's happening. Don't feel like they come around that often anymore. This is one, and and it's it's just um it's worth your time.
0: I really want to read it. I've been following these bizarre sonic terrorism, or whatever I want to think of it, stories for a few years now, and I look forward to um a long read kind of explaining this uh, question mark that I've had in my mind for so long every time these headlines come up. Uh, for my story this week, I am not done reading it. I have to be totally honest, but I'm very excited. To finish reading it, it is called A Business with No End. It's a feature in the New York Times that was actually published today while we are here recording, which is why I'm not done. It's by Jenny O'Dell, an artist based in Oakland. And uh, it is about everything, it seems, uh, you know, everything from like weird religious scammers that are selling like bizarre trash products to like... It's kind of Newsweek and uh which has this really wild parent company that that Will has written about. Um a company called uh Adult Printed Diapers. <laughs> um it's just like I'm still in the middle of reading it, but it's just kind of this dizzying um telling of of kind of capitalism and and media and um this kind of like loopy story. One one line in it that sticks out. I couldn't get over the idea that a church might be behind a network of used business books, hair straighteners and suspiciously priced compression stockings on Amazon, all while running a once venerable American news publication into the ground. Talking about Newsweek there. So um, I'm still in the middle of reading it, but I hope that you guys read it, too. And uh, and then you can feel free to email me or tweet at me about your thoughts, because uh, I think I'm going to want to process this. I'm already really captivated Um But uh, but, yeah, it's it's just it's about SEO creepiness and kids videos. Um, You know, Scientology makes a cameo in here. So (laughs) definitely a rich story uh, that hopefully will uh, give us uh, some useful understanding on this kind of bizarre Internet economy that we're all so dependent on and yet barely understand. And just to be clear, I don't know if this is a good tab because I'm not done reading it, but I really look forward to it. But it's called A Business with No End uh, subtitle. Where does this strange empire start or stop? And so it's actually a uh, piece in 10 parts. So epic for sure. Um, Can't wait to finish.
1: Yeah, there's a lot I could say about it, but I think you're better off just reading it because it's too weird and complicated to get into here. I guess that's true of both of our tabs this week.
0: I just am really um, excited for weird, complicated writing that helps us understand the world that we unwittingly <laughs> live and survive in better um, and hopefully bring us to um, a higher place after we're done with it. And that seems like, uh, it seems like this, what this is going to do. So I'm excited to finish.
1: Yeah, and it is because nobody understands some of these dark Internet arts that a company like this has been able to exist. I mean, it's, it's the fact that this stuff is obscure that allows them to, to, to pull off the fraud.
0: Oh, my gosh. So much reading. I love reading when it's chilly outside. But that does it for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at
1: IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say it.
0: You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Remus.
1: Thanks again to our guest, Antonio Regalado. You can find him on Twitter at Antonio Regalado. That's R-E-G-A-L-A-D-O.
0: And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We appreciate you taking the time to do that. I know it's kind of an awkward thing,
1: so thanks. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobson.
0: Thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in Berkeley, California.
1: Thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week.
0: Bye, y'all.